The following podcast is presented by Ensign Services, Inc., a company engaged in the business of providing contracted for administrative and back office type support services to post-acute healthcare clients. Ensign Services provides accounting, human resources, compliance, legal, risk management, information technology, training, construction support, and other such miscellaneous services to its clients. These contracted for services are available to be utilized at the sole discretion of its clients. References within the podcast to the company and its activities, as well as the use of the terms we, us, its, our, and similar terms used during the discussion are not meant to imply that Ensign Services, Inc. or the Ensign Group, Inc. has any direct operational control, supervision, or direction of the independently operated post-acute healthcare entities. Okay, good. We, we actually just started with a little bit of singing, but uh, hopefully that gets cut and is not part of this podcast. Uh, we're back doing another podcast and, and uh, we're going to be focusing on principles from Jim Collins' book, Great by Choice. So I, I'm here with Spencer Burton. Spencer, good to have you. Thanks, Clay. Good to be here. Yeah, and I and this time I'm going to be the host and and not the interviewee and, and uh, really excited to talk about this book. Uh, why it's so important to us, why it, it should be such a focus for us this year. And and the subtitle of the book I like, uh, it's, it's great by choice. And the subtitle says, Uncertainty, Chaos, and Luck, Why Some Thrive Despite Them All. And, and I like this because I, you know, I'm, I'm always talking to leaders and, and as I've been a leader, I've had these same excuses uh, as to why they could and should be failing, right? I mean, I, I've sat there and griped about all the excuses that I've had in a in a facility. The facility's too old. The facility's too small. The, uh, my training was inadequate. I didn't really get a, an orthodox uh, uh, AIT program or the facility that I took over has such a poor reputation. It's in such a bad location. The culture in the area is different. Excuse after excuse after excuse. I'm sure you've heard a lot of these, right, Spencer? This is uh, I've had lots of them myself. And right, I mean, I, I feel sort of guilty as I talk about a lot of these things. But despite that, some succeed and others don't. And and the book, the purpose of the book is to to find the reason why some thrive in uncertainty and some to not. Some some don't, right? So uh, let's talk about some of these principles about, you know, why why some thrive and some fail in uncertainty. And I'm going to change up the order a little bit, if that's OK, Spencer. I, I, we'll talk about the 20 mile march in a little bit, which I know is a, a real passion of yours. But let's start by talking about what he calls ROL or, or return on luck. Yeah. So return on luck. This is one of the most powerful chapters in this book. And I got to just put a plug in for this book. It's probably my favorite Jim Collins book. Hmm. I think it's perfect for us, especially in these times. This that's year. almost sacrilegious to say with good to great. Though, I know. Right? I've said yeah, it before, though. This bold. book is, is fantastic. The analogies are so captivating. And I think they're so easy to kind of turn to application with us, which I, I love. So this idea of return on luck, he shares this idea by using the analogy of these climbers going up this steep face in Alaska. And then all of a sudden, just as they're reaching the top, a handhold breaks loose and the, the lead climber falls 200 feet. He's hanging by two strands of his rope, you know, legs broken, et cetera, et cetera. And he uses that as an analogy to just kind of talk about what luck is. And I think just, just stepping back, that wasn't fair that, you know, 15 feet from finishing his climb, that handhold fell, you know, let go and he fell. But it was a luck event. We get good luck, we get bad luck. If life were completely fair, none of us would probably be here, 
right? We we wouldn't yeah. be as blessed as we are. We certainly wouldn't be with such sometimes an amazing company. Sometimes it's to our advantage, and sometimes it's not, right? I, I feel like all of us, by somehow becoming part of this organization, we had, you know, some luck that's to our advantage. But the point of the book is luck is a real principle. It, it, it exists, just like oxygen's out there, just like, you know, other ap- a- um, atmospheric things exist. Luck exists. It hits us all. And what he finds is the companies that thrive, I think this applies to the individuals that thrive, are ones that are able to use luck. And when you have bad luck, you make the absolute best of it and sometimes become fundamentally a better person. So when luck changes and you have good luck, um, you get the maximum return on that good luck. Whereas the opposite is, you know, people struggle during bad luck. They complain about the bad luck and then they're not prepared (laughs) when good luck happens and they can't take full advantage of it like the successful companies. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I'll I'll even quote uh, and see if you can guess who this poet is. Look, if you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you ever wanted in one moment, would you capture it? Or just let it slip. Are you, are you starting to feel the rhythm? Uh, it's that right uh, now? Ralph Waldo Emerson, it's not, right? It's, it's my Robert Frost, Marshall Mathers, but Mister Mister Eminem, right? All right, someone he quotes that book. So, so help me define luck then. Yeah. So, the book has actually a great definition of luck, and if we don't understand the definition, it's hard to really apply this. We might stuff. misinterpret like we need to... what he's talking about. Right. Yeah. So, so let me just go through um, what he writes. He says, first of all, so there's three elements. The first one is. There's a significant aspect to the event that happens that's independent of our actions. In other words, we didn't cause this to happen. You know, the climber putting his hand on that hold did not cause, you know, the hold to slip. It was a bad luck event that happened. So the first thing is it's independent of our actions. Second one is there's significant consequences as a result. For it to constitute luck, it has to have the effect, good or bad, on us to to change our... So the weather in Texas recently out of their control it's causing an effect on the facility uh okay yeah and 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 that leads into the third one unpredictable if you would have said it's going to be you know eight inches of snow and negative two degrees in texas in february people would have said no that hasn't happened for 100 years but it was an unpredictable event that happened we've had many of those events happen recently so just to reiterate something that's unexpected it's uh, independent of our actions, and it has a significant impact on you know a person or a company. Okay, so so the book then, I mean, it it talks about these people that, and, and the book refers to them as ten Xers, right? These ten Xers, I, I I think they say that because they at least perform ten times, but I mean, I think on average it says they they perform thirty two times uh, greater than their competitors. Uh, and, and it says how they exercise productive paranoia combined with empirical creativity, uh, fanatic discipline, you know, to create these these margins of safety. So so just in clarifying this, you, you're saying that it's about their ability to expect that luck, good or bad. They're they're acknowledging luck like they're acknowledging oxygen or other, you know, other things in the environment around them. And, and then they're managing it the right way when it comes. Am I saying that the right way? I think you're getting, yeah, a lot of it. Absolutely. Getting um, closer? Well, I, mm-hmm. I think so. I'm trying to, to figure it out too. But I think not only do they manage it as it comes, they've prepared themselves leading up to it. So they're in a condition to maximize the outcomes of that luck. So it's not just managing in the moment when it happens. It's the preparation that allows us to have, number one, the clarity of mind to, to you know, recognize it. And second of all, the strength of the reserves to do something about it. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I, I love a part of the book and I'll just, I'll t- talk to this. It says, luck favors the persistent. Mm. 
But you can only be persistent if you're alive. And surviving bad luck um, requires some of these principles we're going to talk about, just like capitalizing on good luck requires some of these principles. So some of the analogies are, are, are just awesome, but I think it's important to understand it's about surviving so we can be there to capture the good luck. It's funny. I always think in sports analogies, and I was just remembering, I do not remember which coach this was. Um, they were preparing for a, a playoff game. And they said, look, there's all going to be all sorts of elements of surprise. And so so the coach in training kept doing all these really weird things to just keep the players focus. I mean, weird things like replace the football with a watermelon. I mean, you know, started throwing water balloons at the players while they were practicing. And, but, you know, you, you, we, we practice under these ideal conditions. And, and what you're pointing out is... How often do we operate in ideal conditions? It's just not something, you know, you end up then playing up in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and it's, you know, 20 degrees below zero and and uh, and and your hands don't catch the football the way that they should. I, I So it seems like now is a good time to dig into this 20-mile march, which is really a large focus of the book. And those that have been participating in the annual meeting, they, they know we've we spent a lot of time talking about that this. So this is the story of the race to the South Pole in 1911. And, and here are your two competitors. You've got stalwart looking and financially well-backed Robert Scott. And then, uh, you know, looking at your pictures, kind of a, a more scraggly, less well-funded, maybe less well-known Roald Amundsen. He was less, I mean, they were both well-known, right? You were saying explorers are pretty well-known. Yeah. And uh, I mean, look, it's uh, Scott was the most famous explorer from the po most powerful nation on earth. So anyone other than Scott would have been less well-funded and yeah, less, so, less so, famous. So I'm thinking of Rocky IV. I'm thinking of Drago versus Rocky Balboa, right? And Drago had all of this incredible equipment. If you're not getting this reference, don't worry about it. I'll just, just Google it. But so, so these guys are both about the same age. They're both, they've both experienced very similar weather and terrain. There were a lot of things that really were the same, but Amundsen and his team won the race by 34 days. So, sorry, spoiler alert, I just told you who won. Amundsen's going to win this race to the South Pole by 34 days, and he returns home to glory. Um, Scott's team ends up frozen to death, doesn't make the trip home. Now, again, remember that 1911... They don't have cell phones. They don't have modern day equipment to help them kind of track things on this track, the communication devices. And so so this book really gets into the differentiators in this in this race. So let's start with the men and their preparation. And and as 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 you're talking, Spencer, I'm hoping that everybody listening is sort of asking themselves the question, how do I operate as a leader? Am I an Amundsen or am I a Scott? Well, so I, I think as we ask that, if the answer is I'm an Amundsen all the time, we need to go back to the drawing board because we're, none of us, we're lying to ourselves. Yeah. And that doesn't help. Self-deception generally isn't a good strategy, just like luck's not a good strategy. Yeah. So first of all, if we recognize there's a lot of Scott in each of us, and if we can expose our inner Scott, get rid of some of those elements and replace them with some of these elements that Amundsen showed so well, then we have a chance to be able to, go going back to what you talked about, handle the bad luck events and really thrive in the good luck events. Let me just give you a few examples of the 10 years leading up to this race to the South Pole. It happened in 1911. And uh, if you would have gone back 10 years, the clear favorite would have been Robert Scott. Scott That's and, who we would have put our money on. Absolutely. Scott had been there. 
he had gotten quite close to the South Pole already. He and a, a gentleman named Ernest Shackleton, which you referred to in other podcasts, um, they had gone together and they actually got up on this, you know, Antarctic plateau, which means they'd got off the ice shelf and they'd got up through the mountains and they were, they had exposed um, essentially the route that it was going to take to get there and they returned safely. Yeah, Shackleton was well known for being one of those pioneers getting him to that point. Right, right and Scott yeah. was right by his side. Yeah. In fact, they were Learning kind of... from co- the best. Yeah, well, Scott would have said that he was the leader, not Shackleton, oh. actually. So, <laughs> didn't um, they fight about that? Who would, or, or didn't Scott sort of fight for credit? Yeah, actually that, that happened. So, so they returned from this journey, which anecdotally they accomplished using dog sleds and skis, which is exactly what Amundsen used mm. 10 years later. Uh, we'll get to that, I hope, later. But so they, they returned and, you know, Scott and Shackleton became famous. And Scott spent a lot of his time on the lecture circuit. He received awards. He received, you know, naval rankings from the, from the, the queen. And uh, he'd become quite a celebrity. And he really indulged in that celebrity, speaking at dinner parties, etc. Um, he And to your point, he even spent a lot of his time, as often happens when we become self-centered, he spent uh, some of the later years, per, per, you know, leading up to 1911, really arguing with Shackleton about who got the credit for these discoveries that they had made. It was a successful journey, but instead of uh, growing the pie and getting down there and con- conquering the uh, South Pole, they spent time arguing about who had the bigger piece of the pie. Funny, it's reminding me of this uh, Harry S. Truman quote, you can accomplish anything in life as long as you don't care who gets the credit. And that that really <laughs> came into play, head. unfortunately. Some of the the hubris started to, to creep in. During the same period of time, back to the preparation question, mm-hmm. you have um, Amundsen, who truly w- wasn't well known in 1902. But during this time, he leads expeditions, some of them successful, some of them not, to try and discover the Northwest Passage, which is a way to get through, essentially, uh, you know, the Arctic Ocean and get to the Pacific. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to discover routes to get across North, you know, North America by going north. Mm-hmm. He spends a lot of time in Alaska. He really becomes an expert. In fact, some of his preparations are uh, exceptional. Think about this. At the same time where Scott is at dinner parties in his un- naval mm-hmm. uniform, you've got Shackleton dressed like an Eskimo, living with Eskimos, eating raw dolphin meat because he wants to become... Um, what he needs to be to conquer some of these these goals like the South Pole. He wants to know what clothing will keep you warm, and the Eskimos know how to do that. And he wants to know if 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 necessary, can I survive on raw dolphin meat? Just in case, it's, it's kind of a rinsing the cottage cheese uh, philosophy, right? Just in case it might help him, he's going to do it. Yeah, and he's uh, he's not just relying on others, although he was humble enough to learn from people. You know, at this time. Native Americans were not considered, you know, someone you learn anything from, right? Mm. There was a, a bit of a, yeah. a hubris that existed, you know, towards, you know, natives. But he was learning from them. He was living with them humbly, uh, spending entire you know, seasons with them. He learned how to cross-country ski extremely well. He learned how to drive dog sleds, how to take care of the dogs, to your point, how to dress, how to walk. He also um, did some really cool things. He spent his time inventing and perfecting. He took what he knew and he didn't just say, okay, the Eskimos do it this way, so that's a good enough. Eskimos had never been to the South Pole, yeah, right? He yeah. invented goggles that, you know, used leather and used technology from the Eskimos, but he perfected it that allowed him to never get um, snow blindness, 
you know, walking days and days in, you know, mm. the Antarctic summer. He perfected the best exploring boots of his day. He took them apart. He tinkered with them and he put them back together with a, an adaptation to the sole that made it so they wouldn't get frostbite. All of these little things adding on to what he humbly learned from the Eskimos mm. allowed him to be so prepared and have the absolute best chance of succeeding good or bad luck. Is it the Abraham Lincoln? I'm, I'm going to butcher this quote. I should not try and pull these out of the blue here. But is, it Abra is the Abraham Lincoln quote says, if I have, I have eight hours to chop down a tree, I'm going to spend six hours sharpening the saw or something yeah, like that's that. Exactly right. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like that's what he's doing. It's it, game time started long before their expedition. Right. Game time started and all this preparation and all the things that they were going to do. So, so again, differentiate that then from Amundsen. So, so, so that Amundsen felt like, you know, game time had started. So differentiating it, differentiating it from Scott, mm -hmm. you know, you have Scott who is relying on a lot of things like his calculations for supplies were a bit down to the wire. You know, he didn't undersupply himself. But he didn't take the extra steps to oversupply himself. That would have been a waste of time. He was a little bit lazy in his preparation, you know, in hindsight. Mm -hmm. Amundsen did something, and I think this is an important thing for us to consider as we're trying to get on track in our operations or in our departments. Amundsen, he paid the price of getting down there and... He and his support teams, just like when you climb Mount Everest, you know, they establish base camps. You maybe go back and forth a few times. They basically mapped out the first part of their journey using flags. Every couple of miles, they put a flag. So when it came time to perform, they would know exactly the shortest route. He put flags on both sides of his supply depots. So if they got off course in a storm, again, preparing for bad luck, they'd see the flags and that would lead them to their supply depot and they wouldn't go hungry. So instead of just having one flag at the supply depot, meaning they've got to stay on course, he was saying, hey, we might veer a little bit. Absolutely. You're saying, and, and so they're setting flags up, uh, you know, just in case. And that way, if they did veer, there was, it took a little bit more effort. A little bit more time, probably wasn't as streamlined in their time where I'm picturing Scott carrying the minimal amount of supplies so the things are light, you know, putting flags just where necessary, assuming, hey, we're not going to veer, we're going to keep a steady course, failure is not an option. And Amundsen is saying, well, you know, veering is a possibility when the winds get heavy. That's right. And I hope I can get a little bit specific here. Um, okay. Taking it to us, I, th I see this as a big challenge for us in our clusters and in our, our walk as administrators, as DONs, as department heads. It's so easy to be so busy doing, you know, important stuff, but maybe not the most important stuff, that we don't um, set up systems that allow us to inevitably deal with bad luck, which we will. For example, you know, some of our clusters, we kind of go with the flow. And when times are good, it's just fine. But do we have systems set up to catch ourselves when we're a degree off course or two degrees off course, you know, referring to a compass? Um, as, as department heads, do we have variances? Are we looking at our spend downs? Are we looking at, you know, the things that probably aren't glamorous and they do take some time, but they're going to keep us from getting so far, far off course that we eventually starve to death and die? We have the systems do we have the discipline to apply the systems to allow ourselves to be successful in the long game, which is reaching the South Pole and returning alive? And that's really where discipline comes in. Mm. Okay. So, so, and and before we uh, before we get into then this this whole concept of okay, you know, the twenty mile march and how how we get there, 
I, I like, I want to share this quote from Amundsen's philosophy, and it's here in the book. It says, you don't wait until you're in an unexpected storm to discover that you need more strength and endurance. You don't wait until you're shipwrecked to determine if you can eat raw dolphin. You don't wait until you're on the Antarctic journey to become a superb skier and dog handler. You prepare with intensity all the time so that when the conditions turn against you, you can draw from a deep reservoir of strength. And equally, you prepare so that when conditions turn in your favor, you can strike hard, right? So it's this idea, I think it said when he traveled, when he would take trips, he wouldn't, he, he would travel by bike to build his endurance, right? Didn't the mm -hmm. book say something yeah. like that? I mean, he was just constantly saying, in case this helps me, uh, this is, this is what I'm going to do. Okay. So, so Amundsen's somebody that is not going to sit there and hide behind excuses. And again, sometimes, sometimes we do that. It's our temptation to, uh, the difference lies sort of in preparing for the uncertainty. Um, Amundsen plants the Norwegian flag. Can you talk to me then about this whole concept of the discipline of the 20 mile March? Yeah. So, the preparation uh, was a huge part of the success. In fact, Amundsen himself later on talked about his victory and he said, here's a quote from him. He said, victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people call it. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions. This is called bad luck. So we can't understate or we shouldn't understate how important the preparations were. But once you get on the Antarctic ice shelf, the coastal ice shelves, the time to prepare is over and the time to, you know, to adapt and adjust to the storms that come up, you know, is very much what, what's going to help you succeed or fail. And it's interesting, if you look at the luck events that happened to both explorers, they were a couple hundred miles apart. You know, they, they landed on the Antarctic shelf about the same distance from the South Pole, but they weren't right next to each other. But they were dealing with the same weather conditions, the same temperatures, the same winds, the same, you know snow conditions that they had to travel over. And you have Scott who had bet big on this idea of having the latest technology. It wasn't tested. It wasn't tried. He could have tested it. He could have tried it, but it wasn't. And that was called motor sledges. It was the latest and the greatest thing that was going to make his job easy. Didn't they freeze right at the beginning? They did. Just yep, it didn't take long down. at all. But I think we're as leaders, we oftentimes do that. We're like, you know what? I'm so glad I'm not going to have to manage my labor anymore because I've got this. Like, it's going to be easy yeah. now. Shortcuts really don't get you to the South Pole and they don't help us be successful in our buildings. Will you read that definition of luck and the, the, what, that quote again that you just read on um, this is called luck and this is called bad luck? Because I, I have a thought on that. Well, so he said victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people call it. Yeah. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is called bad luck. You know, I, I a couple a couple of stories and then I'll apply one to you know a facility. Uh, I, I heard somebody play this amazing piece on the piano and I heard someone else say to them, "Man, you are so lucky that you have that ability." And I and and I sat there thinking, "Man, I can't imagine the hours and hours of preparation that went behind." I have another friend that that was a NFL starting quarterback and and I heard somebody say to him, "You're so lucky you got to be a starter in the NFL." And, and I just sat there thinking the exact same thing. I can't imagine the hours and hours of weightlifting and preparation and training. And so for him to say, luck, people call it, that really, that really strikes me. 
and and to say, well, you're so lucky you're in this facility that is doing so well and doing and and I think, man, the work that goes in to that discipline being set up and and uh, building that culture and and preparing and training. Look, you can ask yourself, how would we be different if there weren't a nursing shortage? What if, what if there was just an abundance of nurses and we didn't feel the drive to be customer second, right? But there is a nursing shortage. That is something that is sort of out of our control, right? And, and the preparation that has to occur is, am I going to build myself into a true customer second leader? I, absolutely. And preparation is the first part of it. And, and it's such an important part. The second part is kind of this concept of 20-mile march. And that's, uh, I think you can illustrate that great with a couple of quotes from Scott's diary and Amundsen's diary, too, if you'll let me quickly read one of them. So on December 6th, 1911, you know, they're both well into their journey and a horrible storm comes up. Again, preparation happened. Now we're dealing with, you know, luck, the storms that come up. Yeah. And Scott and his team hunker down in their tents. You know, they've already lost their motor sledges to bad luck of them freezing to, you know, freezing and breaking. And here they are, they're hunkered down in this tent. And he says, it's more than our share of ill fortune. I doubt if any party could travel in such weather. I just kind of picture this in a whiny voice, right? <laughs> I, thankfully, I have a whiny voice, so this is perfect. So he says, I doubt if any party could travel in such weather, even with the wind. Certainly no one could travel against it. Guess what? 100 miles distant from Somebody him? Somebody was. You've got someone traveling in that distance. Same day, this is the journal entry from Amundsen. Now, he didn't write it during the middle of the day because guess what? He was marching. He writes it that night and he says, quote, It's been an unpleasant day. Storm, drift, frostbites. But we have advanced 13 miles closer to our goal. Both had storms, drifts, and frostbite. How they wrote about it reflects how they responded to it. For one, it was an absolute impossible impediment. The nursing shortage, the COVID, the whatever. It just, what can I do? I got to stay here in my tent. I've had, I've had an operator tell me, you can't be successful in Arizona. And I sat there smiling and listening. I didn't, I didn't rebut it, but I, I just listened to it. It's just the payer sources and the way they handle this. It's just impossible to be successful in Arizona. And, and, you know, thankfully we have 30 operations that are proving that wrong, right? And, and that's what Amundsen uh, essentially did in this case. Scott was saying, you absolutely can't possibly do it. I'm vindicated in being here and I'm supporting my partners here. They both had groups of four or five guys with them. I'm supporting you guys by helping you understand you're not a bad person for failing. You're not a bad person for hunkering down. It's impossible. Where Amundsen and his men, their culture was, we're going to get out and march and we're going to use our same voices instead of consoling each other for the horrible circumstances. We're going to encourage each other to overcome the circumstances. Same weather, same circumstances, absolutely different result because of how they confronted those excuses or turned them into brutal facts in the case of Amundsen. So Amundsen gets there 34 days earlier. Scott, get, paint the picture of Scott now showing up, uh, fighting to get to the South Pole and and he sees the Norwegian flag there. Yeah, so Scott, I mean, he, it's it's sympathetic. Remember, we're not here to just say Scott was an idiot. Scott was an amazing explorer. And the fact that he, he got, got to the South Pole was really incredible. They had legitimate storms. Not only that, Scott's motor sledges broke down. And then the ponies that he brought, 
Remember, he knew dog sleds worked, but he decided to go with ponies because they were more noble creatures. So he brings ponies, and guess what? They don't do well in three-foot-deep sugar-like snow. So within a couple days of trying to do the ponies, they have to shoot their own horses because they're slowing them down. So then for over a month, Scott has harnessed himself and his men to these heavy supply sleds. They become the ponies. And they're pulling these sleds day after day, sometimes hunkering down in storms, sometimes continuing. I imagine continuing. just working as hard as they can, saying nobody could work harder than this. They were saying that in their journal. They gave more than they'd ever given in their lives. And so then, you know, it's the day before uh, their arrival at the South Pole. They're excited. Tomorrow, they knew from their compass headings, tomorrow could be the day that they're going to get them. They get up, they start walking, and then through their binoculars, they see a speck. Okay. They get closer and closer and closer. All of a sudden, the speck changes. It, it takes the shape of a Norwegian flag Ugh. flying above a little tent. <laughs> you can imagine these men are not only depressed, they're absolutely heartbroken. Like you said, they had worked harder than they'd ever worked in their lives. They'd suffered more than they'd ever suffered in their life, and they lost the race. I, I wonder if they... I wonder what they attributed that to in their mind, because I've I've been in the situation where I felt like I'm working as hard as I can possibly work. And and I don't think I don't think I could work any harder. So therefore, I think, well, then nobody could be successful doing this. I'm the, the phrase I'm doing all that I can. What more do you expect me to do? And I imagine Scott and his men thinking that we are pulling these sleds. What more can I do no, there's no way anybody else could do this. And then they see a flag and they're like, wait, somebody did this? Somebody did it. And that's the powerful thing about, I think, our Ensign family, you know, of affiliated facilities. There is an example out there of someone who's doing it, if we're humble enough to accept it. I was talking to a facility operator who is a talented mm. operator the other day, and he is on an extended admission hold because they've had one or two COVID cases pop up. Mm -hmm. And it's just so heartbreaking. Yeah. They need to build their census. They're capable of taking care of these patients, but the county's just saying arbitrarily in, in their mind, no, you can't. Heavy winds. Sorry. A, a event outside of their control. You know, how the county responds, right? Right, right. It is a storm. It's a luck event. Okay. And, you know, this operator, to his credit, was saying, "You look, I'm managing my labor as well as I can. And that's good. It's kind of like how Scott harnessed himself yeah. to the sled. He I'm was trying this hard. as hard as I can. And, you know... Unlike Scott, this operator is keeping a great attitude, trying to keep his team moving. But if he steps back and he starts reaching out, which is what our Ensign model allows us to do, he would find that he could still admit assisted living patients. Was he relentlessly driving for assisted living admits? Mm. At the point, he hadn't even thought of that. Or what about outpatient? You know, when he looked at it, there were five or six assisted livings within a 10-mile radius of his facility, untapped, with their residents declining because they couldn't get any physical therapy. Yeah. So once he reached out and found other ways and was humble enough to understand that there were other ways, kind of like uh, if Scott would have just considered the fact that maybe skis and dog sleds would have worked, he could have been there too. So once this operator was humble enough to use our model, guess what? He can march. There's a lot that he can do. And I think there's a lesson in that for all of us. When we find ourselves in our tent of despair and excuses, we've got a cluster model to help us. Are we humble enough to use it, though? We've got to reach out. I mean, yeah, it's and I, you know, it's funny as you say that. I think, man, I've I've got to be softer on Scott. <laughs> you know, as I as I joke and say, you need to say it in a whining voice. This is not a soft person. This is not a a slacker, right? Uh, I, I guess I can knock it uh, as soon as I've been to the South Pole. But uh, <laughs> until then, I probably shouldn't. I, I I love the line in the book, and I just I want to bring this up. It's not different circumstances 
It's different behaviors. I've been a victim to my circumstances so much. And I, you know, I've operated in, in Northern California and Southern California and Arizona. I've operated in, in Pennsylvania uh, with a different uh, organization. And, and I think by the fourth state, when I found myself sitting around saying, it's just harder here, I realized well, I've got to be wrong in at least three of those places, right? Yeah. I've got to be wrong. And, and this, uh, you know, th this sort of whiny attitude and, and I, I, I need to be, I need to be kind of cautious in that. Will you, will you tell the story? This, this really impacted me the other day when we talked about this, um, so, okay, so he gets there, he sees the Norwegian flag, that's got to be as discouraging, but he does get there, and now they've got to come all the way home, right? Yeah. They're not done. They're not done. There's, it's not like there's a, there's not like there's a plane that's there to, ready to, to, you know, take them home. So they start going back. I, I imagine they're, they're disheartened. Uh, they're, they're, they're still pushing. Talk to me about their demise. Talk to me yeah, about the so end. Yeah, so when, when they got to the South Pole, uh, interesting they consoled themselves by setting up their tents and resting for a couple of days, which did they need the rest? Yes. Did it maybe cost them their lives down the road? Probably. So they, they rested for a few days, finally got their courage up, harnessed themselves again to these heavy supply sleds, turn around and start heading north, hopefully to safety. And it went okay for a while. But then as they're descending off the, the uh, Antarctic plateau, basically there's a, a mountain they've got to get down to the coastal ice shelves. As they're going, one of their members slips and falls falls to his death and just a tragic event. So imagine their spirits are even more disheartened now. These guys have been living for each other they've for lost. months. They've they're now, lost their yeah, partner. Yeah, but, but they've lost getting to the South Pole. Now they've lost their partner. And uh, what was a race for glory, they're realizing this is a race for survival. Yeah. Uh, you know, just to get back alive. Uh, forget about glory. And so as they continue onward, it's now turning from Antarctica's summer to, to fall and um, the storms start hitting, the temperatures are lower. In fact, they're down there making decent time, but then on about March 9th, um, they're almost to their, uh, you know, to their big supply depot. In fact, Scott himself writes, he knew he was 11 miles away from his supply depot. Hmm. Later when they found, found him, it was true, they were almost there, but this ferocious- That's like, what, a half a day's march? Half a right? day's march. Okay. So um, they're, the storm hits and they hunker down. That's kind of become their habit. We're going to hunker down. We're going to wait out the storm and then we'll go and it'll, you know, we'll travel when it's good. So they hunker down and pretty soon a couple days become six days, seven days. And at this point, the storm's just raging outside. They know, or they, they come to the recognition that they're not going to make it. So they start writing in their journals, farewell letters to their family members. These men, 11 miles away from salvation, from having their supplies, mm -hmm. are holding each other as one by one they freeze to death and die of starvation. Scott was a very compassionate, in his writings, I mean, he, he lauds the honor of his men. He compliments them on how they're dying like Englishmen. Man, yeah. And he's holding them compassionately, but they're dying under his leadership because they failed to get out of the tent and march another 11 so, miles. So relate that for me. I mean, I, that, that's powerful to me because I've, I think at times I have been that leader coddling my people, hunkering down in the tent, not wanting their jobs to be too hard. Relate that for me. Well, I hope everyone can relate it to your own circumstances. I, as I relate it to my own, there's so many times where I find that I, I want to be a compassionate leader. I want to be a good leader. I think most of us do. And we confuse um, allowing people to die in their excuses 
with compassion. True compassion is, and I'm grateful for the leaders who have helped me survive in this company and, and thrive in some senses. It's people who have helped me not die in my excuses because I've had plenty of them. It's people who have said, let's get out on March. We can do this and I'll show you a new way to do it. But you're going to have to put one foot in front of the other. And when we do that, when our clusters become these, instead of, you know, clubs for commiseration about why it's so hard, when these clusters become vehicles for inspiration and for practical best practices that allow us to march, then we can accomplish something. And as a cluster partner, whether you're a department head, whether you're a director of nursing, or whether you're an ED, that's the kind of partner your partners need you to be. As a leader of a facility, that's what your department heads need you to be. There are so many department heads uh, and people out there, CNAs, housekeepers, they want to have a great life. They want to win. They want to be part of a successful facility. And we as leaders make a decision, are we going to allow them to hunker down or are we going to help push them to success, safety, and flying a flag? How, that's powerful imagery to me and this this idea that... that... I, you know, I, I talked to a friend who went through a police academy and, and during this academy, they had to do this part where they go toe to toe with each other and learn hand to hand combat. And this very small guy had to go against this very large guy. And they said, well, shouldn't we shouldn't we ease off and not make him go through this? And he said, look, when you get out there, it's all real and it doesn't help him to to not let him go through this training. You can be soft and cuddly and kind, but that is not kind. Right. And, and to, to, to picture that leader that is lovingly uh, coddling his people inside the tent while they slowly die 11 miles from the next place that they need to go. Uh, it's, it's, it's a powerful imagery to me because I, I don't ever want to be that leader again. But, but it's really hard. I mean, that kind of leadership is hard. It's really hard for me. And I want to, if I can, just share a quick concept that's made a difference for yeah. me. It's... Um, you know, when you focus on, okay, guys, just get up. you got to get to the South Pole. Come on, just do it. You know, that's better than nothing. It's better yeah. than saying, okay, you know, hang out in your tent. Right. But a tool that's been transformative to me is this idea of lead measures, right? It's like, you know, how kind is it when someone comes to you and says, hey, you got to lose 30 pounds. Get on it. Let's go. Yeah. Right. That's a, that's a hard thing, right? Or, you know, you've got to change this or change that. Sometimes it's a distant goal that seems so hard to accomplish. If we as leaders can break down for ourselves and for others, this concept of focusing on shorter term controllable things that inevitably will lead to success, that's where we can truly lead. And that's how we can get our people marching. So instead of you've got to lose 30 pounds, what are you saying? We, we've got to wake up in the morning and exercise every minutes. day for 30 minutes. That It's a huge we difference. And you know, at the end of the day, Clay, not did you lose 30 pounds because you didn't, but you know whether you did or didn't get up and exercise 30 minutes. So not, we've got to get our census to 100. What? We've we got to... to be the provider of choice. So the hospital, whenever they have a, a placement, they think of us first. We've got to have the fastest response. We've got to have the best clinical programs. We've got to have the lowest readmission rate because we're watching our change of condition every morning and stand All the up. fundamentals. The fundamentals. That's all the 20 mile marches in my, in my take. As we apply it to us, the 20 mile march is saying, I've got 1,400 miles to go on this journey. Yeah. I'm going to go 15 to 20 miles every single day. I'm going to have a meaningful stand-up meeting every day where we look at data, where we talk about real challenges, and where we follow up from the previous day. And then setting up those markers. I, I, I know we're out of time, but I, in talking about how uh, 
how do I do that as a leader? How do I make sure that we hold the team accountable to knowing that we've hit our 20 miles that day, right? Yeah, I, th I think that is truly one of the great things a, a leader can do, whether you're a department head or whether you're the administrator at DON. Helping your team set up what their 20-mile march is. You probably don't know what the dietary manager's 20-mile march needs to be exactly, but you know that it has to involve high-quality food, hitting your budget, and taking care of your people, right? But they can figure out their 20-mile march, and then we as a team in the facility can make sure we have scoreboards that show that we're not missing our markers, and that we have a culture of support, but discipline and feedback when we're not hitting our markers. And I think, Clay, that's so powerful. If, if I could say nothing else as we go into this next year, if we can realize the need for fundamentals for our 20-mile march, and if we can take the extra step of, instead of just saying, oh yeah, I've got a supply depot out there, I'm going to put one flag in it, let's be the type of leaders that make it so we can't miss our 20-mile march, where it's uncomfortable, it's almost unnatural for any of us not to hit the goals that we've set, and then make sure the goals are the right goals. Focus on these lead measures that every day you can say, whether I had a good day or a bad day, whether I had COVID or no COVID, whether I had a staffing shortage or not, did I accomplish my lead measure goal? Doing that to the, I, I think this is something that I love and maybe I can quickly say it. The book says there's three main principles um, that a 20 mile march accomplishes. The first thing is it accomplishes confidence. If you marched 20 miles yesterday in a blizzard, guess what? You can get up and do it again tomorrow. Yeah, you become right? a believer. If you have done rigorously your 30 miles of, of exercise, go, or 30 minutes of exercise, mm -hmm. you can do it again. If you have kept your budget the last week, even though it was difficult, you know you can do it again. And on and on it goes. So the first thing is it builds confidence. The second thing is it builds strength because you're not pushing yourself too far. Amundsen didn't march, and we, we didn't talk too much about this, but he could have marched 50 miles some days and probably got there a little sooner. So the, so there's a restraint on both ends. When conditions are bad, you have to push through that bad weather. When conditions are good, you also have to have the discipline to say, we're not going to push ourselves too much here. We're going to retain our health because we know conditions will be bad again. You know, we're not going to just sprint and, you know, make hay while the sun shines at the expense of our people or our systems or mm -hmm. the other things. I mean, our, our organization's lost that. There, there's been times when the organization had a really good year. They lost their mod, maybe acquired more than they should have, bit off more than they can chew. And, and you know, there, there's a where they probably should have had the, had the discipline to hold back, right? Yeah, we, we should have. We made yeah. that we, we've made that mistake. And hopefully right. now we have the context with this 20 mile march to not make it again. And okay, so, we so confidence and strength. And then the final thing is just this idea of focusing on control, controlling the things you can control. That's, uh, that's power. That's liberty. Once you accept that things aren't excuses, that doesn't mean they're not real. You know, a blizzard is still a blizzard, whether you use it as an excuse or not. It's still cold and the wind's still blowing. Yeah. But focusing on the control that you have, I can still put my coat on. I can still put one foot in front of the other. And by doing that, I have a sense of control, not just confidence, not just strength, but I have a sense of control, which is probably the most important thing we can have in this uncontrolled, out of control environment that we're operating yeah. in. That's that's an ownership principle for me. I mean, it's, it's uh, again, I, I, I think back to living in Ecuador and, and so many of the people that I, I got to know that had these dirt floors and they would sweep those dirt floors, right? And this idea that, okay, what was out of their control, they couldn't afford a, a carpeted floor, a wood floor, something like that. What was in their control, I've got a dirt floor, and I can make it the nice, most even-looking dirt floor 
uh, that it possibly can be, right? And they they had a lot more pride. I've seen that too. They have a lot more pride in their dirt floor and yeah. keep it a lot cleaner than a lot of people do their They're tile nice, floors. Nice, yeah. I uh, again, uh, there's so many points that have stood out to me. It's 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 not different circumstances. It's different behaviors. A, a 10xer, like the book says, will never blame circumstances for their their failure. They will they will not allow that. They. They, they become resolute in this principle that we are ultimately responsible for our performance. We, we never blame circumstances. We never blame the environment. It's, it's no excuses. Take responsibility. Don't think that the solution is out there, right? The solution is with you. Um, and if you're not getting results, change something. Change behaviors. Spencer, any final points you want to make before we uh, finish this? Well, just thank you so much for having me. I think this is not only a great topic, it's the right topic for this time in our, our company's history. I think it's the right topic for so many of us as leaders who are tired. We've marched through a brutal year. 2020 was hard for everyone, but it was hard, probably harder for people in our industry, for the people we love and lead and for ourselves than almost any other you know space in the economy. We've had a rough year. And that doesn't mean that uh, you know we can sit back and relax. We need some of these principles. I just encourage everybody, uh, if you take nothing else away from this, look in the mirror, look at the story, which I think is such a poignant story, and expose your inner Scott. Every one of us has one. And this story is only helpful if we will not only learn from the great things Amundsen done, uh, did, but um, also expose our inner Scott. When you do it, it's a humbling experience, but it's also liberating because we can change the things that we need to change to be better. We can lead our teams to victory. We still have time this year. We can recover from the storms that we've, we, we've faced and we can make it back safely through 2021. As we do it, I know that um, we can be successful. We can grow as leaders. We can have great successes that are awaiting us. We can rebuild our senses. We can return to fundamentals and ultimately we can continue to be the ensign that the nation needs and our seniors need more now than ever. We truly are standing alone in a horrible environment with the ability to make it something special for people. That's really good. I, I, I picture so many people in the industry that are hunkered down in their tents right now with the weather so bad, hoping that somebody else will, will send them more whatever uh, resources, uh, hoping that somebody comes to help them survive and to see the leaders that we have that continue to march, continue to push. Uh, it's it's uh, but but again, some of us that aren't there, uh, there's a there's Scott in all of us, as you say, and I, I think that's really important. Spencer, thanks for your time. I, I've learned a lot, and I think there's a lot of things that I'm going to work on. So grateful to have you. Thanks, Clay. Thanks.